tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. I, never mind. Just talking to the voice in my head. Oh dear. Well, at any rate, let's. I think we really need to pray. It's been one of those days. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit; they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light. Spirit, grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in His comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Lord, again, we ask you to bless all those people who are suffering from this terrible situation. And we also ask you to, to bring peace to our, our very divided nation. And we ask these things through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, thanks for your prayers for all my friends who are ill. I feel like I'm cheating when I do that. But um, um, uh, the voicemail said, that's one of the perks, I guess. Perk, schmirk, as we would say in Skokie. But uh, thanks so much. And uh, the people we've been praying for, I got good reports on, but keep them in prayer, especially those who are, are uh facing life-threatening illnesses, and I, I always pray for all of you. So, it's what we do. All right, well, let us go to the big book on the coffee table. This is this is interesting. Um, well, of course, the whole thing is uh, the big book on the coffee table, but this is First Maccabees 4.36. And um, uh, we move down to um, the, the, uh, the, the Jesus... Uh, talking about uh, well, the, the, the purification of the temple. It's written, My house shall be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. Well, how does that relate to the first reading? This is about Hanukkah. This first Maccabees, the fourth chapter, is about the establishment of Hanukkah. And it's always a great disappointment to my Jewish friends that this section of the book of Maccabees, which they don't regard as inspired, um, they, they're interested in it, but actually not too many of the Jews I've known have actually read it. They're kind of shocked that it doesn't mention the miracle of the oil. Uh, in a Jewish tradition, I don't know if it's in Talmud or not, but it's a very strong Jewish tradition that they couldn't find enough consecrated oil, and it would be quite a while before they could perform the rituals to consecrate the oil to light the lamp in the temple. Uh, and they found uh, enough for a day or two, I think it was a day or two, and it miraculously lasted eight, I think it was eight days. Uh, it lasted the whole week, and uh, 
That's why the Hanukkah menorah has more candles on it than the uh, regular menorah, the seven-branch candlestick. But it's not in the text of, of Maccabees, and I was kind of disappointed about that, but it doesn't mean it didn't happen. So that aside, this is about the, the rededication of the temple after the Syrian Greeks had defiled it with pagan images and pagan sacrifices, and uh, it's a very important moment. Now, I want to kind of uh, move off <laughs> Uh, talk a little bit about the Maccabees themselves. Uh, yes, was it yesterday we saw the 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 uh, refusal of Mattathias uh, uh, Hashmon to sacrifice to uh, the pagan gods, and uh, he killed a Jew who was sacrificing, was saying, "Ah, what difference does it make? Let's just move along." And also the the official and that went to the hills. Now everyone says, yeah, that's the way to do it, you know. But remember, we read in St. James that human anger does not work the righteousness of God. And I, I, I make the point, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean we should do it. Uh, Abraham had lots of wives. So, well, we should have lots of wives. No. Uh, uh, look how it worked out for Abraham. It didn't work out well at all. Uh, Abraham had uh, a son Ishmael by Hagar, and uh, he had a son uh, uh, Isaac by uh, uh, Rebekah. And uh, Ishmael is the father of the 12 tribes of the Arabs, and um, uh, Isaac, through Jacob, well, he's the grandfather of, of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you can look at what's going on in the Middle East as kind of a family feud. The descendants of one are at the throat of the descendants of the other, and vice versa. So um, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean we should do it. The Bible, to me, this is one of the most intriguing things about the Bible, is it lists the sins of its heroes. I mean, it lists the cowardice of Simon Peter. It lists uh, the, the bad temper of James and John. It, it, it mentions the cynicism of Nathaniel, uh, that the Bible really is, I don't know any other book full of heroes that talks about the hero's bad qualities. And that's important. In the Bible, we read the whole truth about people who should be lionized and worshipped. They aren't. So it is with the Maccabees, that, that uh, the Maccabees were a disaster in terms of a family, um, the the uh, Mattathias uh, led uh, uh, the revolution, and uh, uh, the Maccabees were very successful, and they wanted to to continue the revolt and conquer other lands. Galilee was conquered by the Maccabees. They 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 didn't stop; they just kept conquering. Uh, they. Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, were fighting over the, this 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 demand to conquer other territories and forcibly convert people to Judaism, and um, we have monarchs such as Alexander Janaeus and Judah Maccabee, and um, uh, um, then we 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 see also that the this is real important to understand the New Testament. So I'm not just trying to dazzle you with obscurities, but I think it's real important to understand this. The um, 
the 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 Maccabee family became enmeshed in the local politics and local wars. They didn't know when to stop. And they arrogated to themselves the monarchy, though they weren't descended from King David. And they arrogated to themselves the high priest, though they were not descended from, oh, why can't I think of the name of the, of the high priest? The Zadokite, Zadok, um, the Zadokim. Uh, the, the, the Zadok was the high priest uh, um, uh, under David and Solomon, and it was always a descendant of Zadok. You see, the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. A family within that tribe, the family of Aaron, were priests, and the other Levites of the tribe were assistants. Uh, and and so when the temple was established under David and Solomon, Zadok, the high priest, uh, received the right to pass on the high priesthood to his descendants. And that had become the tradition. Well, the Maccabees, though they were priests, they were a priestly family, they weren't, they weren't descendants of Zadok. They weren't descendants of David the king. They had no right to the throne. And when they rebuilt the temple... Uh, or, or rededicated the temple not not too long after that. Now, I'm a little fuzzy on this, but I'm pretty sure that, that this actually happened. Uh, they extended the temple platform. That The temple platform was perfectly square, 500 royal cubits. And Aline Rittmeyer, a, a scholar who unfortunately doesn't get himself peer-reviewed, but he's really smart cookie, uh, Dr. Aline Rittmeyer, R-I-T, I think, M-E. I R, I E, <laughs> Lean Rittmeyer, look it up. The uh, Dr. Rittmeyer makes the point that there is a stone uh, on the west side of of what is now the the Haram is Sharif, which is clearly a Solomonic stone, and you can measure the size of the temple. That stone has since been covered up since Dr. Rittmeyer pointed out that it went back to the temple. But I don't want to go there. The point is that this this it's pretty clear that this temple platform was 500 royal cubits square. Well, the Hashman family, the Maccabees, seem to have extended it. There's something called the Hashmonian extension, and they did it for military purposes. So the, Hash, the Hashman started off fine, but this, this bit of violence was, was there at the beginning. They could have gone off to the mountains and started a revolution, a revolt, without killing a fellow Jew and killing... Uh, the the ambassador or the the delegate of the king. Uh, well, they they arrogated the high priesthood, they arrogated the monarchy, and they arrogated uh, and they took over the temple, and this created movements such as the Essenes and different different Dead Sea sects who went out to wait for the Messiah because the monarchy, the priesthood, and the temple were corrupt. They weren't going to have anything to do with it until the Messiah came. He would reestablish the, the Lord's house. And he would reestablish the Davidic monarchy, and he would reestablish the priesthood. He would purify these things. Now, I maintain, and remember, I'm not really a scholar. I just play one on the radio. But I maintain, uh, and uh, people like, like Dr. Brant Pitry, who's genuinely a scholar, I mean, he is a cookie of great smartness. And he... You know, it's very funny that the, this cleansing of the temple, which we see today, is um, uh, mentioned in in the context of Holy Week in uh, the Gospels, except in the Gospel of John. It's at the beginning. 
And Dr. Pitry, I don't know if he still holds this, but I remember talking, I had the privilege of talking to him uh, a few times, and, and I mentioned this to him, and he, he said, no, it, he believes that the cleansing of the temple happened twice. You know, I'm not a scholar, so Dr. Pitry's probably right, but I would think if Jesus had cleansed the temple early on, it's one of the things that caused his his arrest and execution, that he had fought the corruption in the temple. You see, the temple would have been dominated by the family of, of Annas and, and the, the buying and the selling and the the the, the immorality of, of of the money-making operation in the temple. Uh, well, they weren't going to let Jesus diss them, and so they, they decided to execute him. The Sadducees, not the Pharisees. The Pharisees did not kill Christ. The Sadducees did. At any rate, uh, I think if Jesus had done at the beginning of his ministry, his ministry would have been very short, but that's just me. And if I had to pick my opinion or Dr. Pitry's, well, frankly, I'd go to Dr. Pitry. So that said, I will now charge on to express my opinion on this. I think that the reason that the cleansing of the temple appears at the beginning of the Gospel of John, we learn at the end of the Gospel of John that... Uh, these things have been written that you might know that Jesus is the Messiah. Who's the you? Well, it is pretty clear from the early church fathers and from the text of Scripture that the Gospel of John was directed at the followers of John the Baptist by John, the beloved disciple, who had been a disciple of John the Baptist. They thought that John was the Messiah, and so the Gospel is full of things pointing out that no, no, John said, I'm John the Baptist said, I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is. Behold the Lamb of God. And uh, very interesting that, that uh, the cleansing of the temple was one of the messianic expectations. The Messiah would come and purify the temple. And I think the Gospel of John puts it at the very beginning because he's saying, this is the guy you're looking for. He's cleansing the temple. That's when Jesus said, destroy this temple, I'll build it in three days. Those were fighting words. And uh, that's exactly what's going on in this in this gospel today, in the first reading, that the temple had been purified by the Maccabees, but they quickly defiled it again, using it for their own dynastic and military purposes. And Jesus purifies the temple again. The Maccabees had redefiled the temple in a sense. They started off well, but they wanted power. They wanted to conquer the nations around them, forcibly convert people to Judaism. In fact, is the, the family of Herod, uh, who, who uh, married into the Maccabee family and ultimately killed them all, uh, um, he was... Uh, he was His family was forcibly converted. They were Edomites, Essentially, Arabs who were forcibly converted to Judaism about a century before Christ. So I think that, that, that um, to me, the Maccabees is a glorious example of how we can start off well in, in God's purposes, and then we can fall flat on our faces. Um, well, Jesus purifies the temple. And the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were seeking to put him to death. Now, to me, the interesting part of this, you know, that, that nonsense, the Jews killed Christ. Any Jew that you meet today is a theological descendant of the Pharisees. When 
when the high priest said, His blood be on us and on our children, he was talking about the Sadducees. The Sadducees controlled the temple. They were a priestly group. Uh, they were a political party made up of priests. They controlled the income of the temple. Uh, they, they were the wealthy, and uh, they cursed themselves. They didn't curse Judah. They cursed the Sadducees. And with the destruction of the temple, the reason for the existence of the Sadducees evaporated. The Sadducees ceased to be a group in Judaism. The Pharisees, however, if you meet a Jew today, he is a theological, spiritual descendant of the Pharisees. And they were noble people. And you see that they came to Christ's rescue a number of times. Uh, Herod, that fox is out. Herod is out to get you. He said, tell Herod, that fox, uh, that a prophet cannot die outside Jerusalem. You see, the Pharisees tried to rescue Jesus. And the Pharisees, Gamaliel, who was the ranking Pharisee, rescued John and Peter, we see in the Acts of the Apostles. So this nonsense that the Jews killed Christ. No, the Jews didn't. The Sadducees may have, but not the Judeans. So uh, I, I just, I think that when you look at the nuances and the, the, uh, the, the, the depth of history that surrounds the temple, uh, it makes it so much richer that, that the ultimate defiling of the temple was its rebuilding under Herod. <clears throat> that the, 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 the Maccabees extended it for their own purposes, but Herod completely rebuilt it and completely dominated it for his purposes. That's Herod the Great, the one who killed the babies. So many of the Herods you read about in the Bible are his sons and grandsons. Uh, think of Herod as a last name when you see it. Herod the Great, though, he was the one who killed the innocents, and he completely rebuilt the temple uh, from the inside out. He trained 10,000 priests and Levites. That's a number I've heard stonemasons and carpenters so that the worship of the temple never ceased but it it continued um, during this rebuilding and the temple was considered the most beautiful building in the ancient world people came from all over to see the temple and what did they find when they entered the temple precincts they couldn't go into the old sacred uh, square that was marked off uh, by a low wall no gentile could pass that or they'd be killed when these uh, non-Jews came to see this beautiful, beautiful, I mean, it was incredible. The front was plated with gold, polished so bright, Josephus says it hurt to look at it in the sunrise. What did they encounter? They encountered a stockyard <laughs> because the bazaars of Annas were selling sacrificial animals and changing money so that you could go into the sacred precinct. And that's what Jesus was upset about, that they had taken um, his father's house and made it a den of thieves. And they, that, we can't let this stand. Jesus is bad for business uh, because Jesus was bad for business. They didn't care about his theology. They cared that he was bad for business. And when a religion descends into a fundraising organization you got to raise funds religion is not cheap i'll admit it but when the fundraising uh, uh, becomes the purpose of the organization it ceases to be at all uh, the the um, the house of the lord so enough said let's go to a break uh we'll come back with our mass hysteria segment i got a couple fun stories uh, and uh, then we'll read some letters and uh, we'll open the phone soon at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. We will be right back. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com forester. 
It's a lovely song. You know, I want you to know I don't dislike all these songs. I just think most of them are kind of fun, and they're they're not great art, um, and they're eminently forgettable. They're hummable and forgettable, and I don't know that they're quite as good as singing the, the scriptures at mass. But I digress. So, you know what? It's time to do. It's time to go to mass hysteria. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Uh, what, what's that? What comes out this weekend? Your voice in my head? The new Ghostbusters movie. The new comes what? Out this weekend. I just wanted to give a shout. The out. who that, movie? That quote is from the old Ghostbusters. Oh, 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 yeah. The, the new Ghostbusters movie is coming. That's the old Ghostbusters. Dogs and cats living together. Actually, I have friends in Springfield who have a dog and cat that are very confused. They they think that they're the same species. But I, okay, let's get to mass hysteria. Okay, now, uh, um. Someone called in the other day, that person has called in a couple times to talk about how I'm I'm causing division and um, this is great music. And I, I don't know the age of the person, but the person called this stuff new music. And my point is, it's not new. And if you listen to what young people are listening today and you want to have contemporary music in church, well, don't. It's horrible stuff. Somebody actually did a study about uh, music as it's it's degenerated in our times. It just has fewer notes. It just, it is, it is, um, um, there's been a degeneration of music in our times. And um, uh, I think that that's important. That's why I, I mentioned, and I want to mention again, the Floriani, F-L-O-R-I-A-N-I, Floriani. It's a, a, a group that's revitalizing sacred music in America. They, they're fantastic. Um, you know, that, that I, I, they did a lot of this wedding I was at over the weekend. They did quite a bit of uh, sacred polyphony, um, uh, but they also did chant. And my point with chant is that it's something that is eminently singable. Uh, little kids are singing along with it. Uh, the, the wedding was fascinating because little kids are singing along with chant. Everybody couldn't help but sing after they had heard three or four examples of this Byzantine chant. It is so simple and so involving. And that's that's my point here. We don't sing songs at Mass. We sing the Mass. But I like this music. It makes me feel holier. I can feel God when I hear it. Okay, two stories. I'm going to tell you two stories. Uh, um, <laughs> you know, I joke that uh, um, somebody said once you should father you should make mass more exciting and i said on the contrary i'm trying to make it more boring and they said you're doing a wonderful job i joke but in a way i am saying the truth i remember a story and i've told you this before but remember a story about an orthodox jewish man who did not believe in life after death uh that you can be a perfectly good orthodox jew and not believe in life after death. Most of the Orthodox Jews I've known believe in the survival of death, and they believe in the resurrection, and they believe in the judgment. But that's not required. Judaism is much more practice than it is a theology. And Orthodox Judaism is. And uh, there was this old man who was punctilious in observing the law. He observed the law wholeheartedly, no matter how difficult it was for him. And somebody challenged him and said, you don't believe in the survival of death? He said, no, no, I don't. 
then why are you doing this? You're not going to face judgment. And the old man looked at his questioner and said, why am I doing this? Why do I obey the law? Because he is worthy. Think about that for one minute. Because he is worthy. I really believe in the necessity of Sunday obligation. That we go to Mass, not because it enriches us, though it does. Not because it makes us feel good. It certainly can and should. But we go to Mass because He is worthy. And we sing these songs because He's worthy. But I like them, Father. That's fine if you like them. But your reason for doing it should be because He is worthy. Now, another story. Um... I remember one day, uh, many years ago, uh, it, I was feeling in the need of prayer. It was Sunday. And I had heard that there was a traditional Mass with a beautiful choir, a Tridentine High Mass. I had been to the Tridentine Mass since I was a boy, you know, the old Mass, and the gorgeous polyphony in the choir and the, you know, all the yada yada. And um, um, I, I, it was, I think I finished my mass at 12.15 and the, this mass started at 12.30, close to downtown Chicago. The way I drive, I could make it down there in 15 minutes. Well, I was five or 10 minutes late. Uh, uh, you know, I had a, uh, a sacristy that had a stairway that led right to the garage. I was out of there and uh, I was five or 10 min minutes late. And uh, the voice might said like Batman almost. Well, um, I was five or 10 minutes late and uh, it was a hot summer day, a packed church full of screaming children. And an old man was saying that was before I was an old man. An old man was mumbling into the wall in a language that I could have understood had I heard him. There was no choir. It was not a high mass. It was not air-conditioned. Lord, I'm not having much of an experience. And the little voice inside said, Oh, you came for an experience. I thought you came to worship. Touché. At which point I began to worship and just kneel before the Lord and say, Lord, whatever you want. Then, of course, I did have an experience. I felt very moved by the Holy Spirit at this rather unartistic, um, unsentimental, unadorned mass. And for the first time in my life, I understood the real presence, the real presence. Oh, the real presence. It's simple that bread and wine become, they don't represent, but they become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the whole Christ. Okay. You know, you know, the textbook definition. But what I realized was that it was real, whether I felt it or not. And I understood that that old priest up there was not responsible to make me feel something. And I realized as a congregant, I was not responsible to feel something. All I was responsible for was worship. And the word worship in Greek and in Hebrew means to kneel down. I humbled myself before the Lord. And um, do you understand? It's a real presence. Whether you feel it or not, it's real. Oh, but I feel so good when I hear these wonderful hymns. We Americans like to think of ourselves as hard-headed realists. We are not. We are squishy, soft sentimentalists, 
unless we don't, unless we feel it, it's not real. Honey, I don't feel love for you anymore. I'm divorcing you. Love isn't a feeling. It's what you do. It is to will the good of another. Uh, we are, I don't feel that that law applies to me. Well, it does. I don't feel that I need to stop at the stop sign. Well, you do, or you're going to get rammed. You follow what I mean? The real presence doesn't depend on my feeling it or perceiving it. It is real without my vote. This changed my whole attitude to, to the Eucharist, that, that there's some days you feel it and some days you don't. But you know what? He is worthy. He is worthy. So whether you like the song or not, doesn't matter at all. Whether it is sacred polyphony and Gregorian chant you like, or it is uh, tired old 60-year-old pseudo-contemporary music, which you can tell what I like better, but it doesn't matter. You know, I think that the argument is strong that we do not sing hymns at Mass. We sing the Mass. The conversation between God and us, embodied in the Scriptures, is the fit text for mass and the fit way to to sing those sacred texts instead of squeezing them into the proper meter and melody the proper way to do it the easiest way to do it is chant whether it is gregorian chant or a more modern chant doesn't matter that's my opinion and that's why i'm making a big deal about this because i understood by a gift of god that the real presence is guess what real all right we're going to go to letters and then we will uh uh, uh the, the, oh, yes, letters. Oh, good grief, letters. Okay. I was going to kibitz some, about something, but I forgot what I was going to kibitz about, so I won't kibitz. All right. Oh, I, the voice might just remind me to kibitz. Kibitz, that's a Yiddish word meaning to kibitz. Uh, kibitz uh, about the Advent reflection. Advent is not, I said a few days ago, Advent, a Latin word meaning jump into the shopping frenzy. It does not mean that. It means the coming, the coming of the Lord. And it is a time in which we meditate on the 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 coming of Christ, which will happen when we least expect it. But we celebrate it nonetheless, as we remember his first coming. So go to the app, go to the website, listen to Father Rocky's Advent Reflections. It will make your Christmas a lot better. All right. Okay. This is a letter from Tim in Los Angeles. Last Friday, you gave a wonderful commentary on purgatory and God's judgment. You suggested that while God is not punishing us for our sins, we must still stand before the fire of God's love and see slash experience the pain we've caused others. You know, all that isn't love and light in me is going to be purged away by God's perfect light and love. That's what I meant. What factor do indulgences play in this process of purgation? Now, uh, third rail, third rail, here we go. Look at the fine print on indulgences. To gain a plenary indulgence, you must, at the time you have, you're praying for that indulgence, you must have no, uh, what is the word, uh, not attraction, but not affection, Oh, gosh, let's use the word uh, att attraction because it's close. You must have no attraction to uh, to sin. Uh, you must have given up the desire to sin, even venial sin. I wonder if in my life I have ever been in a state where I didn't desire at least maybe to see somebody I didn't like slip on a banana peel. Um, that, that an indulgence 
is about repentance and uh, to receive a plenary indulgence under the usual conditions, attachment, I think there's no more, no attachment to sin, mortal or venial, um, that that attachment uh, um, to, to, to turn from our attachment to sin is about repentance. And so indulgences are very much part of the process of repentance. And we forget that. So I, I think that uh, this kind of magical thing, I got 80 plenary indulgences. You did, did you, huh? 80 times? You, I can't think of once in my life when I've had no attachment to sin, uh, even if it's road rage. I mean, you know, uh, uh, yeah. yes, the voice of my just said, it sounds like that person's attached to the indulgence. Uh, you know, so I, I really think that we need to look at indulgences as part of the process of repentance instead of the free pass out of hell theory. It's not a free pass out of hell. It's a drawing close to the Lord and asking the Holy Spirit for the grace of repentance. So indulgences fit in quite nicely with the idea of, of, um, of uh, letting God's love purge you of your attachment to, to the failures and sins of of your life. Okay, that's my thought on that. All right, let's see here. How are we doing? Okay, we're good. All right. Um, oh, this is, oh, good grief. Today, you're focusing on letters. You mentioned the promise of releasing a thousand souls by recitation from private revelation. Also, you indicated that Pope Leo forbade them. It made me think of the sin of superstition, the criticism of indulgences. Aren't we always supposed to have inner disposition to accompany the outward action for prayers to the upright and effect to be upright and effective. This is from Alexis. Exactly. This is the point I'm trying to make. Let me let me find that in the catechism. I should have found that already. Okay. This in catechism. Catholic catechism. All right. We're pulling it up. We're pulling it up. I feel like well, I guess we're not because once again my computer's just dawdling. I hate it when my computer dawdles. But uh, it'll come up eventually. Oh, we're running like a Himmel haircut, Millen Donnerwetter. That's German for golly. Let's try it again. Okay. Okay. All right, here we go. Catechism of the Catholic Church. All right. Super. Okay, you can stop the, the music there. Um, it is... Uh, um, come on, brain. It is... Uh, in paragraph 2111, superstition is the deviation of religious feeling. Uh, and the practice, uh, the practices this feeling imposes, it can affect the worship we offer the true God. Isn't that something? Let's look at that closely because it really does kind of help me grind my axe a little. Superstition is the deviation of religious feeling and of the practices this feeling imposes. It can even affect the worship we offer the true God. When one substitutes an importance in some way magical to certain practices otherwise lawful or necessary, to attribute the efficacy of prayers or sacramental signs to mere external performance, apart from the interior dispositions that they demand is to fall into superstition in other words if if you know the people come to get their car blessed who are going to be using it to run guns to the to the hot and tots or something I, I hope that's not terribly politically incorrect well that blessing isn't going to help them uh, and I would say this almost does apply to 
to the attitude of, I don't feel it, it's not real. That's not the interior disposition people are talking about. The interior disposition... C.S. Lewis, in this, in, again, in the Screwtype Letter, says wonderfully that the, the devil wants us to feel forgiving. God wants us to be forgiving. The devil wants us to feel loving. God wants us to be loving. There's a difference there. And I might think my feeling is the interior disposition. This has made me feel so good. And I, yeah, I'm an old Pentecostal. I love a good religious emotion. However, and sometimes I hear these songs and they make me weep. Uh, I can almost not hear the song. What's that song that's, uh, for Holtz, uh, Jupiter? Uh, da, da, da. Oh, it's about, uh, oh gosh. Oh God, beyond all praising. That, that song invariably drives me to tears. But the tears aren't worship. It says, though my, though our, um, though our days be filled with good or ill, we will rise to praise you still. The feeling that that gives me isn't worship. It's the rising to praise him still that, that's worship. The, that I'm going to do this no matter what happens in my life, no matter how good or ill it is, I'm going to rise and praise God. That's the interior disposition, not, oh, it made me feel so wonderful. Give me a break. Faith, not feelings. All right, let us. That's the old Pentecost. You say that all the time. All right, we're going to take a break. Then we will come back with a word of the day and phone calls at 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Yes, we'll gather at the river, a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> <laughs> You know... There are some hymns which are magnificent art. There are some which are not. Uh, the one we played before the break, that's really good art. Have it for a procession. It's I just wonderful. I, you know, I'm not anti-hymn. But uh, this is a fun song. And it's, it's uh, amazing how it has survived. Like, let us gather at the river, an old 19th century song. But this particular version is a hoot. Well, all right, let us go to the word of the day. And also, the phones are open at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Jesus entered the temple, Luke 19. It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. That's a very interesting thing. Um the the uh where is that written let's just let's just let you know that it's written in um uh isaiah 56 uh verse 7 and it's written in jeremiah 7 11 um well what's he talking about very interesting when you see the word house in the new testament especially in the gospels it refers to the temple the temple mount is called harhabayat the the, the mount of the house when they talk about the house, your house is left def left to you desolate. That means the temple, that the word house, very frequently in its context, usually means temple. 
So I think that's kind of interesting because uh, there are a lot of verses that mention house in this. I, mean, I should have pulled that up. A lot of verses that mention house in the uh, New Testament. Um, uh, and let's just see where the house is here. Oh, and my computer one. Ah, forget that. My computer's just woogling at me. You know, when your computer woogles. Let's go to phone calls. Andrew from Aurora, are you with us? Buddy the Elf, what's your favorite color? Yeah. Andrew, oh, um, I got the wrong thing. A... Yes, go on. Go on. Hello, Father. How are you? I'm good. Confused as ever. But what can I do for you, Andrew? <laughs> I, I heard something recently on, on, on Relevant Radio. It, it was either yourself or, or another host uh, that, that was talking about abstinence on Fridays. And seemed to seemed to imply that 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 this is a requirement throughout the liturgical year, the whole calendar year, that that you abstain from meat every Friday. But I I, I was curious about it, so I looked at or I, I did the best I could to look at at uh, canon law, and it it seemed to agree with what I, I thought I had always been taught as a youth is that abstinence is only required during Lent on Fridays during Lent, as well as of course fasting on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. I was wondering if you could clarify and just kind of sure. uh, help me help me set that straight and make sure. I'm doing the right thing. As a sure. Catholic. You are absolutely right. Uh, it is not required. It is strongly encouraged and recommended. Penance is required on uh, Fridays. Every Friday for us is Good Friday. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday. So it's not required. Penance is required. Abstinence for meat is not. It is the normal custom and very much encouraged. Um, and it's, it's, when I was a kid, it was no problem. We were so used to it. Now it's a great inconvenience. I've gone back to it. But for me, that means if I'm abstaining from meat and I'm invited to someone's house and they prepare a steak, I'm not going to say, no, keep your steak. I'll eat the gruel because, well, I'm fasting. No, I'll eat the steak and say an extra, an extra rosary or something that there are other penances you can perform. Uh, um, I'll, I'll, Send some alms to someone. Uh, the normal penance is abstinence, but it isn't. You're right; it's not required except in Lent and on Ash Wednesday, uh, along with, abs- with 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 fasting. Does that help? It does. Thank you so much, Father. I appreciate right. it. God bless. You. God bless. God bless. You know, it is. It, it's. It's. A, it's. Why do we fast? Because it's an exercise in freedom. The devil wants to rob us of our freedom. But when I say, yeah, I can eat that steak or I can eat that piece of cake or I can, um, but I don't have to. And I'm not going to. I'm going to say no to me. You must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. How are you denying yourself? How are you saying no to yourself? That's what to deny yourself means, to say no to me when I say no to me. So are you denying yourself? Because if you don't, you can't be his follower. That's in the big book on the coffee table. Who have we got now, dear voice in my head? Carolyn from Bay Point, California. What can I do for you, Carolyn? Thank you, Father. I listen to um, the radio a lot, and I'm a little confused and would like your clarity on something. Um, On the Drew Mariani show, at the end of the Divine Mercy, um, one of the things he says is, Holy Souls in Purgatory, pray for us. Mm -hmm. But on the Patrick Madrid show, unless I'm greatly mistaken, and that's why I'm calling you, um, Mr. Madrid has said that the souls in purgatory cannot pray for themselves. Yes. Is it that they can pray for others but not for themselves? And if so, why? Yes, because they're, 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 
I think sometimes of purgatory like having to stay after school to make up the homework you didn't make. In other words, you're learning the love of God in purgatory. It's a continuing of discipleship. And so they can pray for us, but not for themselves. Uh, they can't pray their way out of purgatory. Uh, they have to, they're there to learn the nature of God. And the nature of God is, is love. And so they can, they can pray for us. They can love us, but they can't uh, love themselves. Now, uh, so one soul in purgatory praying for another soul in purgatory. And I don't know how that works, whether it is Catholic doctrine that that can't happen, but they can't pray their way out of purgatory, uh, that, that they're there to learn love. And part of love is to pray for other people. So does that help a little? That does. And Father, so we, in our prayers for the souls in purgatory, we can pray them out for our oh, loved sure. ones, um, you know. Yes, we're entering into okay. yeah, we're entering into relationship. Uh, to love is not only to be loved. Sometimes it is very hard to let people love you. And remember, the definition of love is to will the good of another, to authentically let someone love me. Uh, is 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 to love them. You know, I don't know if you're a parent, but uh, children, uh, they say children keep you young. Uh, they'll age you like a bad habit. You know, Ma, I'm going to make you breakfast in bed. Oh, all right, dear, that would be lovely. And she's thinking it's going to take me a day to clean up the kitchen. But she lets him do it. She lets her do it because she wants to allow them to love her. It's what's good for them. You see, to love and to be loved are not even separate sides of the same coin, they they are they are related to each other very closely. Does that help a little on that? It does. Actually, I wrote that down when you said it about 15 minutes ago. I wrote it down because I'm not going to forget it. Thank you. <laughs> well, good. Oh, I should write things down. Believe me. So uh, <laughs> I think we're going to have a little more time for phone calls. 888-914-9149. Who have we got on the line now, dear voice in my head? William from Wisconsin, what can I do for you? Hi, Father. Hello. Um, I was just wondering if you were aware of a book by Dietrich von Hildebrand called Liturgy and Personality. I am aware of it, though I have not read it. He's a real okay, scholar. Okay, because... <laughs> no, I'm not. Uh, there's a part where he's talking about music. This was like in the 20s. Mm -hmm. That the only music that should be at Mass to be music that carries the weight of revelation, which sound, which is basically exactly what you're saying. And I thought yeah, it was close. really interesting yeah. Um, yeah. that that term is, could, <laughs> could be in your mouth, I guess. <laughs> no. Well, and, <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know, the weight of revelation, is that the phrase he uses? Yeah, because you were saying it has to be Bible. And yeah, it, because it, that it, carries yeah. about that weight, so the music ought to match that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 this this dialogue that goes on. God speaks to us at the beginning of the mass, and then through the rest of the mass, we speak to the Father. You know, we say "you," and it just always fascinates me if you look at the "you"s in the Bible. It's all addressed to the Father, even in the consecration. We're reminding the Father of what Jesus did, and we're repeating his words. But so often priests kind of look at the congregation and says, he took bread and said, take this, all of you. And it's as if 
he's speaking in the congregation, even in the consecration, that you, which talks about the disciples, isn't addressed to the congregation. It's addressed uh, to the Father. You follow? It's like I'm saying, Father, he said this to his disciples. Um, so it, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating study of liturgy, and it would be a very good preparation for liturgy, I think, to just look at the use. He has spoken to us in the liturgy of the word. And, you know, very interesting, in the Old Mass, uh, when the priest preaches at the Old Mass, which didn't always happen, um, what would happen is the priest takes off his maniple, and that was symbolic of, of the cord that, uh, in some interpretations, in some art, tied Christ to the cross. He would take off the little wristband he had, lay it on the, on the sacrament, and go to the pulpit. That was symbolic of saying, this isn't God, this is me. Uh, this isn't revelation. This is just me. And then he would put it back on when he went and said the creed. So, yeah, well, thanks for that. Thanks thanks for that. I'd like to say great minds think alike, but Dietrich von Hillebrand, he was a great mind. The Reverend Know-It-All, nah, not so much. Thanks for calling in. Who we got now, dear voice in my head? Jessica from Orange County. Our, what can I do for you, Jessica? Hi, Father Simon. I just have to say I love you, and I listen to you every day. And I'm oh, gosh. are always praying for you. You're so funny. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you for praying for me. What your thoughts. <laughs> I was wondering your thoughts on um, someone, a loved one from purgatory, uh, communicating with you, like communicating in the sense of giving you a sign. Like um, a vision, I... like a quick vision. I would, I would, you know, I suppose it can happen. I would never look to communicate with anyone who is dead. Uh, sometimes that happens, but to look for it is, is, uh, that's what the Bible calls necromancy or, or summoning up the dead. And you don't want to do that. Sometimes, though, you know, we get a sign, like a vision. A vision is a sign from someone who's gone beyond. Uh, uh, if it's given, that's one thing. But if it's sought, that can be superstition. So I wouldn't look for a sign, but I, it can happen that someone, I remember my godfather, uh, when he was dying, uh, his daughter said, just send us a rose. You can go now. You've done your job. She got home, and it was winter, and her husband came in with a rose. She said, look, there was a rose in the garden uh, at this cold time, and she, he gave it to her. The phone rang to say her dad was dead. So I would think that's a sign from someone who had died, but she wasn't seeking that sign. When she said that to him, he was still alive in this world. So never try to communicate with the dead. You may get the dead, or you may get something much, much worse. That uh, uh, So many people think they're communicating with spirits and they're communicating with demons. So don't look for a sign. Uh, but if it's given, it's given. And you can be grateful for it. All right, I, I hear music in my head. That's definitely a sign that Drew's coming up, and he's very much alive. <laughs> 